Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, J. Kenji Lopez-Al gives us a wok cooking lesson for home cooks, including the science of stir-frying and wok A, the distinctive flavors and aromas often referred to as the breath of the wok. 
my dad was obsessed with Chinese food, and so we would spend weekends going around Chinatown. And the thing that he always particularly liked was when the chow fun had that nice smoky flavor. Like I, that was all. That's always the refrain I hear in my head. Like we would go to a place, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is like great chow fun. It has that nice smoky flavor." And it was something that I heavily associated just with restaurants. It wasn't something that, even when we tried to make chow fun at home, it wasn't something that we ever really got at home. Also coming up, we learn about Morocco's communal bread ovens, and Cheryl Day joins me to answer your baking questions. But first is my interview with Chelsea Monroe Castle about making fantasy foods a reality. She's the author behind A Feast of Ice and Fire, a Game of Thrones cookbook, along with seven other cookbooks based on the foods of fantasy fiction. Chelsea, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, thanks for having me. You think a lot about how authors treat food in their novels. Yes. So maybe give me a couple examples where you found the food really exceptional. Sure. Well, it's definitely an occupational hazard for me that I am always focused on any food reference going through books, even movies, TV shows, video games. It's like I can't unsee it now, uh, for better or worse. And I think my go-to example for doing it very well is George R. R. Martin, with whom I worked on the Game of Thrones cookbook. Right. His food descriptions are so lavish and so part of the books and part of right. that world that it's sort of an inside joke with fans of his work. You know, everything's dripping in bacon grease and the lemon cakes are always being stolen from the kitchens and things like that. But I think it works so well because he's really thought about where these things come from in the world and how people are getting them and what it means to someone in, say, Winterfell to have a sweet pastry made out of lemons, which can't grow anywhere in the North, so they have to be imported and are really a, a special treat. Well, I think you also wrote about the fact that Winterfell's menus were very different than the South. Absolutely. The food described where you were. Exactly. And it, it very much characterizes the different regions. And I love when an author goes through the effort of thinking through a lot of that, because it obviously makes my job much easier when it comes to translating those descriptions into real food. Because I, I have a source then for, you know, the trade routes or growing seasons or what spices might be used in different places. You got started by doing a fan blog, right? I did, yeah. A friend of mine, Sari Ann, who's my co-author on the Game of Thrones cookbook, she and I were roommates in Boston, and we were both reading the books or rereading them, and this was before the show came out, and we decided we would make dinner as something from the books. And at this point, there were no recipes for any Game of Thrones food online, which is sort of hard to imagine now. Mm -hmm. We thought, well... If we're looking for recipes, maybe someone else is also. So we'll just throw it up on a blog. You talk about sourcing medieval recipes, especially for something like Game of Thrones. Why medieval? Because the style of cooking, I mean, I guess Game of Thrones is medieval at heart. Is that why? Yeah. And I think it's very interesting to explore historical recipes, in large part medieval, but also Elizabethan and even back to ancient Roman, because in a way it does what good fictional food also does. It takes something familiar and defamiliarizes it. 
because it's the same ingredients, you know, it's chicken and oregano and cinnamon, but combined in such a way that you've maybe never tried before. I've done a little bit of cooking out of 19th century American cookbooks, but Mm. you're going back a few more centuries and you talked about swans (laughs) and you (laughs) said the best I could find was an online source that would deliver a live and presumably very angry swan for about a thousand dollars. Yeah. So are there other ingredients, (laughs) let's say for this book, Game of Thrones, that would be a good substitute for some of the things you needed to use? Well, not so much substitutes. There were some things that were just off the list because we couldn't source them. When we were really going gung-ho, we were looking for lamprey, which I think you can get around the Great Lakes, but we asked several befuddled fishmongers uh, who couldn't really understand why anybody would want them. But I think one of the interesting things was sort of discovering ingredients that have fallen out of fashion, a lot of spices in particular. Like what spices? Grains of Paradise Mm -hmm. is a personal favorite. And it it seems somewhat of a resurgence now. Homebrewers use it a lot. Isn't it used a lot in West Africa too? Isn't it? It yeah. is, yes. And that's, I believe, where it originates. But it was a precursor to our black pepper. And it's just so much more interesting and nuanced and tingly on the tongue. Right. And I think it's really fabulous. It's I've got some of that just in my pepper grinder at home. So your recipes, uh, you give two versions. You know, you do sort of the the authentic one, and then you do a modernized version. But the recipes, I'm looking at a breakfast in King's Landing right now. You know, cheese and onion pie, white beans and bacon, quails and butter, apricot tarts, peaches and honey, sweet corn fritters. Uh, The menu sounds, you know, pretty reasonable. I mean, if you you said I'm doing a cookbook on Game of Thrones, I'm going like, okay – There's going to be dragon confit or something in here. But it's it's quite manageable, right? It is. And that is always one of my goals. You know, I want people to actually be able to make it. I don't want it to just be some novelty coffee table item. You mentioned lemon cakes. Are those individual cakes? Are they big cakes? What are lemon cakes? They are. I think in at least one place they're described as snitchable, like something that you could sneak off a tray. And so the historical recipe is really more like a cookie, but the modern recipe is little petty four squares, which are altogether too easy to eat. (laughs) So let's move on to Star Wars, the Star Wars Galaxy Edge cookbook. A couple things stood out to me. Um, The Mustafarian lava buns, the planet Mustafar, it's a magma covered world. It is. That's where Anakin and Obi-Wan have their last fight. One of my personal favorites is the munch fungus loaf. And and Uh, what is a munch fungus loaf? (laughs) It's um, sort of a curried mushroom bread. And it's it's very interesting. I did not think I would like it, but it's nice with a little butter toasted. Mm. Almost everything's good with a little butter toasted. Isn't it though? Yeah, that's Mm. including Hutties slime pods. Uh, I think yeah. you, you made gnocchi and green sauce. That was your I did, yeah, yeah with the avocado pesto. Uh, so it's this bright, vibrant green, but it they look like little grubs almost swimming around in it. It tastes much better than it looks, I have to say. So you spend years doing this and dive deeply into these books. Do you get to the point where it's almost real to you. And that is the, these worlds like George Martin, these worlds are so brilliantly described. 
that they become almost as real as medieval times were here on Earth? In a few rare situations, I think that that definitely does happen. And I think George Martin's books are definitely one of them. Any world where you can spend that much time thinking about it and puzzling it over is one that hopefully leaves a lot of room for exploring in other ways, and food is one of those. Chelsea, it's been a pleasure, a tour of great books of fiction and their recipes. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was Chelsea Monroe Castle, author of A Feast of Ice and Fire. Her ninth book, The Star Trek Cookbook, comes out this summer. Right now, Cheryl Day is here to answer some of your baking questions. Cheryl is the owner of Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. She's also the author of Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. Cheryl, when you were starting out with Back in the Day Bakery, you told me that one of the things you did was bring some of your baked goods to the local barbershop that was nearby. Yeah. To sort of warm people up. Boys to men. <laughs> is the barbershop, I think the barbershop's still there, isn't it? Oh my no? gosh, it's still there. Yeah. We've been open 20 years. It's been there over 30 years. And they really did love when they would see me coming across the street yeah. with baked goods. And so you just dropped them off and introduced yourself and... Dropped him off, introduced myself. Griff actually used to go get his hair cut over there, too. And we just really wanted the folks in our neighborhood to know we wanted to be a part of the community. And that was one way that we Mm. thought we could do it. And we also selfishly knew that once they tasted our cinnamon buns and our biscuits, that they would be back. (laughs) And it worked. I mean, how could you not? Right. Okay, Cheryl, it's time to uh, take some calls. Let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Dan from San Diego. Hey, Dan. How can we help you? So I have a question about milk. When you use milk in baking, Mm -hmm. whenever I bake cakes or whatever I do, a lot of recipes call for milk. But it's nothing that I ever keep. It's just nothing that I, I don't drink it. I don't use it much. So I've always wondered if there was a way that I could use powdered milk as a replacement for just Yeah, I keep a little carton of powdered buttermilk in my fridge at all times. And I think the formula would be the same for regular powdered milk. So if the recipe calls for a cup of milk, you'd substitute one cup of water, the same amount, and then a quarter as much of the powdered milk or buttermilk. So a recipe that calls for one cup of milk, you use a cup of water plus a quarter cup of powdered milk. And that should do it. And it works pretty well. And maybe Cheryl can talk about this, too. I do know that some people use powdered milk as a secret addition. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Cheryl, take it from it here. It is definitely a secret in the baking world. So it's great that you're thinking of substituting it because then you'll always have that milk powder in your pantry, you know, whenever you want to start baking. But the secret way that we use it is about a tablespoon goes into cookie doughs and brownies, and it really adds a depth of flavor that is hard to describe, but it is definitely a secret magical ingredient for baking. So you might want to give that a try also, since you'll have it on hand. And you can also uh, toast it in a skillet or you know a small skillet, like a nonstick skillet or something. Yeah, I love um, doing that. Yeah. That adds a really great, like a 
a nutty kind of flavor right. to doughs. Using the powdered milk isn't going to change in a major way the consistency or how the recipe works. No, it actually won't change at all. It'll be exactly cup for cup if you're using it in a recipe that calls for fresh milk. But again, this other little secret is you'll add the powder and that doesn't change the ratio at all. It just adds a little bit of fat and a little bit of flavor without changing the um, moisture content. Sweet. Cool. Yeah. That sounds perfect then. Great. Thanks for your question. No, that this, this was a good one. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much for calling. Perfect. Have a good afternoon. Take care. This is Most Street Radio. If you want to become a better baker, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. Once again, 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sharon Paradis. How are you, and where are you calling from? Eastern Washington State. Hi. How can we help you? We uh, did your goat cheese cheesecake recipe the one with the black pepper and the graham cracker crust. I've never had anything go so wrong and taste so great. So (laughs) it was, it it was a dilemma. I followed your instructions. I think literally to the letter. The last step is to add the eggs. And so I did all of that, added the two yolks, put the bowl that I'd had the eggs in into the sink and looked back, and the entire thing was curdled. No idea why. Put it in the oven, followed those directions. When I pulled it out, there was like oil, almost looked like clarified butter, all over the pan that I baked it on. We cut the cake, and it was heavy, You could see some curdling, but it tasted wonderful. (laughs) This curdling usually happens because there's some ingredients that are too cold. The chev, the cream cheese, the creme fraiche, all that stuff, the eggs. Everything had been at room temperature. I had it out for, oh, several hours. I do have one other suggestion, and then I'll let the expert speak here, Cheryl. Usually what people do wrong with this is they don't, whip enough or beat enough when they they add the eggs. I was taught a long time ago to wait actually 15 to 20 seconds between adding each egg because okay. you really want to create the right structure. Yeah, incorporate it. So it just sounds to me like you didn't take enough time. I mean, Cheryl, what do you think? I would probably agree with that. I'm a little curious about where this clarified butter situation is yeah, happening from. Me too. Is there butter in the recipe? There is just, well, there is for the crust. Just the crust. Right, but that's it. And the crust stayed fine. One thing, though, sometimes you're doing a batter. It can look a little curdled. Right. But when it bakes, it's fine. Exactly. Yeah, but in this case, unfortunately, it (laughs) it wasn't fine. So I'll still stick to the egg thing. But Yeah, maybe it just needed a little bit longer. Did you try to remix it or you just kind of poured it in at that point? I let it mix for a while to Hmm. see if it would come back, but not a terribly long time. Well, you you know what you should do? You should actually get a little timer because 20 seconds just feels like forever. It does. And usually people do it for four or five seconds and add the next egg. So just make sure 
because I think that would definitely help. And if you think about it, what happened, even if you're trying to mix it after it already broke, it's almost too late at that point. But when you're incorporating it, that's when you want to make sure that it's mixed fully incorporated. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you you. taking the time with me. Oh, thanks for your question. Thanks for calling. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Jay Kenji Lopezal gives us a walk cooking lesson. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like, just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. 
we are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt about his latest book, The Walk. Kenji, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm fascinated by the walk. I think we talked about this when I was in Taipei a few years ago. I, I watched someone fry, steam, stir fry, do all these things mm-hmm. you know, within a space of a few minutes in the same walk. And I do think it's the ultimate cooking vessel. But let's start at the very beginning. You said originally it was something used for holding or drying grains, right? It wasn't even used for cooking. Yeah, I mean, the history of the wok goes back, I, I don't remember which which dynasty it was, but right around 0 AD, it was right around when when wok started showing up. Um, and they were originally made out of stone or clay and used as giant vessels for drying grain. And eventually, as, as um, metals and other materials started being used, they became much more versatile. So when cast iron came around and people started making woks out of cast iron, you could then sear and fry and sizzle and do all these other things in woks. And of course, modern woks, most of the time these days, are made of carbon steel, which is even more versatile than cast iron because it's not as brittle. And it's lighter, so you can do things like stir-fry very effectively in them. But uh, yeah, the, the original woks were sort of fixed in place, big things that were used to uh, dry grains. So let, let's start with the biggest concern slash problem, which is mm-hmm. if you're not in a restaurant and you don't have, you know, one of these massive burners, right. you just don't have the same amount of heat output in a home kitchen, which means that you effectively, some people would argue, can't really stir fry. Uh, or use a wok because you don't have enough heat. Now, you're going to disagree with this, but I'd love to hear the answer because (laughs) this has been bugging me for 20 years. Uh, I'm going to, yeah, I am going to disagree with it. So the the first and easiest answer to that is that the vast majority of people in the world who cook with woks, like we're talking hundreds of millions of people cooking in a wok every day, don't have a restaurant-style burner at their house, right? So there are, you know, people who are cooking for their whole families on regular home burners throughout Asia, and of course, you know, scattered around the world as well. Um, so the idea that that cooking in a wok requires this 150,000 BTU restaurant burner right. is is sort of silly, right? Um, you know, it, I think it, I think a lot of that is colored by our experience as Americans, where most of our exposure to Chinese food is restaurant-style Chinese food. You know, so like for me, I grew up in New York, and we grew up eating Cantonese and Hong Kong-inspired Chinese-American food in Chinatown, right? And so dishes like beef chow fun, right? So that would be one of those quintessential dishes that really has that strong 
uh, wok hay, that smoky flavor that really requires a very strong restaurant-style burner. But there's an entire wealth of home cooking that you don't necessarily find. In, you know, of course, there is some overlap between home cooking and restaurant cooking, but there's a lot of stuff that is cooked at home that you wouldn't necessarily find on a restaurant menu. So just so I understand, wok a is that very smoky aroma, really, and flavor you get from wok cooking. And usually we're talking about a high heat burner in a restaurant. But I think what you're saying is you can still get some wok a at home without a high heat burner by using different kinds of recipes and different techniques, but not by trying to replicate how someone cooks with a wok in a restaurant, right? Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think, you know, it's sort of like saying I can't cook a steak the way they cook it at Peter Luger because I don't have a 1600 degree broiler at home. Mm-hmm. Right. And But when you cook a steak at home, there are other ways you can cook steak at home that are equally delicious. They're just different. Right. You know, so home cooking and restaurant cooking are just two different types of cooking. Let's pull a, a real Kenji. OK. And let's do the science of these oscillations in a stir fry. I thought this was really interesting. So take us briefly through the science of, of stir fry. Okay, so there, there's a few steps in stir-frying. And, and honestly, stir-frying is a misnomer for the actual term. Um, it's really much more of a toss-frying. So because you're not, you know, stir-frying to me gives you the idea that you're sort of leaving the wok in place and you're stirring it around with a spatula, which is not really what you're doing. Um, with stir-frying, most of the action comes from shaking the wok as opposed to shaking the tool that's in there. There was a study done where um, this team went out and, and took some slow motion video of people cooking in walks um, to really sort of break down the motion and understand what's going on. Um, and what they found is that there's basically four steps. You know, so that you initially start with the walk flat on the burner, but a little bit angled up, so tilted towards the back. And then you start to kind of push the walk forward, and then you flip the food up over the other side, and then you let it roll back in kind of a wave over the back of the wok and catch it near the handle before you start repeating that process again. So that motion is really essential to a stir fry because it does a couple things. So first of all, you're keeping the food constantly moving. And when you're working with small pieces of food, keeping it constantly moving is going to make sure that it all cooks evenly. Secondly, you're throwing the food up. And if you're using a gas burner or you have properly preheated everything, there's this kind of hot column of air that moves up the back of the wok as you pull it forward. And your food kind of flies up through that hot column of air. Hmm. And that allows the steam that had been generated by the food in the wok, it's trapped in that column of air. And when you throw the food back through it, the steam condenses on the food. Um, And that Hmm. action of condensing uh, actually transfers energy to the food. And so what it does is that stirring and tossing process cooks your food much faster than just sort of letting it sit in a pot and stir around with a a spatula. So let's get into the uh, metaphysical issue here, the breath of a wok. Um, Grace Young told me this. She wrote a book with that title. Mm -hmm. And her father, when they were younger, went to a Chinese restaurant. They'd sit right next to the door to the kitchen Uh because he said that breath of walk lasts only a few seconds. Right. And when they came (laughs) through with the food, he could smell it. Yeah. Uh, And he thought that was just a wonderful experience. Could you just explain what the breath of a walk is? It's like the fajita platter at at Chili's, right? (laughs) (laughs) You go to Chili's? Um, Wait a minute. Hold on. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a number of different chefs and cookbook authors and asked them what they 
thought of the breadth of the walk, this idea of walk hey, and virtually all of them gave different answers, ranging from the very physical, you know, right. it's the smoky flavor of food that's cooked at a very high temperature in a carbon steel wok, you know, something very, very matter of fact, um, to something much more metaphysical, like it, it's, it's, the, it's the sound of the sizzling that you get from the wok when you're sitting outdoors on like a hot night in Beijing, and you have a nice cold beer in front of you, and it's, it's, it's much more about the overall experience and the aromas that are filling mm. the street and the restaurant as opposed to one specific thing. So really, I think it's a matter of your experience with it. Um, So for me, you know, what I learned as the breath of the walk, I mean, until Grace Young's book came out, I don't think, you know, many people called it the breath of the walk. And now that's just sort of the, the term that encompasses it. But for me, it was always when I went out to restaurants with my dad, you know, my dad was obsessed with Chinese food. And so we would spend weekends going around Chinatown, both in New York and Boston. And the thing that he always particularly liked was when the chow fun had that nice smoky flavor. Like I, that was all, that was always the refrain I hear in my head. Like we would go to a place and he's like, oh yeah, this is like great chow fun. It has that nice smoky flavor. Mm-hmm. And that's what he called it, right? Just that nice smoky flavor. And it was something that I heavily associated just with restaurants. It wasn't something that even when we tried to make chow fun at home, it wasn't something that we ever really got at home. So part of it, I think for a lot of people is that overall experiential thing of going to a restaurant and, and having someone cook for you and being surrounded by the sights and the smells. So let, let's do a how to cook in a walk 101. And one of the things you start off with is if the dish includes meat, you talk about washing the meat, vigorously yeah. <laughs> washing the meat and water, squeezing it out as hard as you can, and then marinating yeah. it through massaging, slapping, lifting, and throwing. Um, yes, the, and I know you tested this because you test everything. <laughs> But just take us through the washing of the meat, please. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So um, if you're eating a steak in a Western restaurant, you expect the meat to have some kind of chewiness to it, right? You want want some chew. You want some give in there. So it's this balance of tenderness and toughness that you're looking for. Um, Whereas a lot of times with stir-fried meats um, in Chinese restaurants – you want them to be very, very tender, and you want them to almost have like a like a sort of slickness, a slippery texture to them. Mm-hmm. And there's two important steps to getting there. Um, the one that I had known about for a long time was the marination process, and particularly using right. alkaline ingredients in the marinade. So brining mm-hmm. meat with baking soda and salt, or, or in some cases, sodium carbonate, your baking soda. Um, or, for example, um, in meats that are velveted, you would use egg whites, and egg whites are also alkaline. Mm-hmm. The other process, though, is one that I didn't really recognize as very important until I saw people doing it online, particularly this chef, um, Wang Gang, uh, Sichuan chef who has a YouTube channel. You know, I started seeing these videos of Chinese chefs actually washing the meat and the way they do it is extremely vigorous. It's like you're washing clothes, like you're scrubbing clothes and really wringing it out. <laughs> and so I tried it at home and it was like, I mean, the, the difference between meat that's vigorously washed in water versus meat that is not washed and just marinated, it's enormous like it it it, hmm. it really completely changes the texture of the meat um and, and why do you think that is well i mean i think it's it comes down to just sort of mechanical tenderization you know and and it's really interesting to me because in a lot of western cuisines you know like you think of like french cuisine right and and a lot of the goals in french cooking is concentrating the flavor. So you might take like a a chicken, right? You take the breasts off, you roast the carcass and make a stock out of that. And then you reduce that stock very slowly. And so you're really concentrating all the flavor of the chicken and then you'll serve that reduced jus with the roasted breast, right? Whereas with a lot of Asian cuisines, that's not really the goal. It's much more about 
balancing flavors. So a, a dish of like beef and broccoli, right? We don't necessarily associate that with like a very strong beefy flavor. We really associate it with more of the balance of meat and vegetables, the balance of sweetness and savoriness and aroma in the sauce. Um, and so when someone says, well, when you wash the meat, aren't you really washing out like the beefy flavor? Well, in some way, yes, you are. But then you just have to ask yourself again, it's sort of like resetting your expectations. Like that's a bad thing in French cuisine, but it's not necessarily a bad thing uh, in some Chinese cuisines. Well, that's my speech. You just stole my speech, but I, <laughs> we've both been giving the same speech for years. So we've prepped the ingredients, the meat or the shrimp. Uh, mm-hmm. Just take us through a basic approach to how to stir fry in a wok. Okay. Well, so I'll start this with the caveat that this is a very broad, you know, there are many, of course, many recipes that call for different techniques than what I'm about to right. walk you through. So, but, but as a very broad overview, um, the technique I would do at home, you know, so the, the first thing that I would recognize at home is that my home burner only has about, you know, 10 to 15,000 BTU probably. So about 10 times less than a restaurant burner. So the main thing to remember is that you want to cook in batches. So typically what I'll do is I'll start by cooking my meat um, and I'll cook it no more than a third to half pound at a time. Um, so if that means, you know, I'm cooking for four people, I might cook in two batches um, my meat. And each time what I would do is I would rub a very thin film of oil into my carbon steel wok and then heat that. And that thin film of oil is really just there as a temperature indicator. So I'll know that when the wok starts right. sort of lightly smoking, that it's at the right temperature to start stir frying. What they do in restaurants and what some home cooks call for um, is they'll preheat the wok till it's really hot. They'll dump in a whole bunch of oil and then they'll pour it out. Then they'll heat up that whole wok until it starts smoking and then add some fresh oil and start cooking. Um, in Western cooking, you would call for putting the oil in as you're preheating mm-hmm. because generally you don't get the oil hot enough that it really starts to break down, right? Whereas in wok cooking, you're, you're generally cooking at much higher temperatures. So if you try just preheating all the oil that you're going to be stir frying in from the very beginning, by the time it's hot enough to stir fry in, by like really smoking hot, the oil will have started to break down and it develops some kind of off burnt oil flavors. Hmm. Um, so that's why I recommend just doing that really thin film as a temperature indicator. Then just before you start cooking, you add some fresh oil in there so that it doesn't have a chance to break hmm. down. And so once you do that, you would start by adding aromatics. Um, depending on the recipe, you could add aromatics straight to that oil. So something like slices of garlic and ginger, um, stir fry them very briefly just to get the flavor into the oil and then add your meat, stir fry it just until it's almost cooked through and then transfer it out onto a sheet tray. Um, And then you repeat that with as many batches of meat as you need. And then after that, you would switch over to your vegetables. So you do the same process, preheat the wok, add some fresh oil, add your vegetables in there, stir fry them, and then set them aside on a sheet tray. Um, And then at that point, if you want to add some of that smoky wok flavor, if if it's appropriate for the recipe, what you can do is you just take a a kitchen torch. So I I use like a a butane torch uh, and then just pass it over the ingredients that you have laid out in the sheet tray um, so that the oil on their surface vaporizes and uh, burns a little and singes and adds that sort of smoky flavor. Uh, And then finally, right when you're ready to serve, you preheat the wok again. You add all your ingredients back in at the same time. You drizzle your sauce in around the edges of the wok so that it really has a chance to reduce and cook really rapidly as opposed to sort of slowly trickling down through the food where it'll just steam. And then you toss everything together maybe 30 seconds maximum in there, and then plate it up, and you're ready to go. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. My guest today is J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. After the break, we'll continue our conversation about his latest book, The Walk. Please stay with us. 
You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moesalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, we return to my interview with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt about stir-fry techniques and his latest book, The Walk. Let's talk about walks. Uh, there are lots of different shapes. They're sort of flat bottom. Mm-hmm. They're the more conical original design. They're very light, very thin carbon steel. They're heavier ones 
what do you buy? So my basic suggestion for anybody cooking on a Western range, um, buy a 14-inch wide flat bottom wok made out of carbon steel that's 14 gauge, so about two millimeters thick. You know, that's what I've used for the last 20-something years. I mean, I, I think it's the most useful size and shape for a Western kitchen for someone cooking for, you know, a small group or for a family. It'll work on pretty much any Western range. Uh, it's large enough that you can fit a bamboo steamer in there. It's large enough that you can deep fry or simmer or steam or, you know, anything in there. Um, but yeah, that, that would be my recommendation. Are there some unusual things you do with a wok? I was in Thailand a few years ago, and I they, they would cook eggs in oil at the bottom of the wok. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost... I wouldn't say deep frying them, but they they were almost poached in oil, I guess I would say. Yeah. Which which was really interesting. Are there other things uh, you do in your book or otherwise that people wouldn't normally think of doing in a walk? I mean, so there there is like a huge egg chapter in the book. And, and I would say the range of textures that you can get out of an egg cooking in a wok um, – outnumber even the range of textures that you find in, in typical Western cooking. And, you know, and eggs, you can get so many textures from silky to crispy to puffy to tender. And so, yeah, you know, one of my favorite recipes in this book is called slippery beef. Um, and this is really a home style dish. It's not something you would really find at a restaurant, but essentially you start by stir frying some aromatics and some strips of beef, and then you add um, wine and stock and quite a bit of stock you know, a a couple cups of it, and then you thicken it up really heavily so that it's almost like the texture of like a, like a light gravy with a cornstarch slurry. So, um, so, and, and then after that, you, you beat your eggs and you very slowly drizzle them in the the way you would do for say something like egg drop soup. But, you know, instead of having that texture of a soup with, with silky strands of eggs, the whole thing becomes this really sort of tender, silky, I mean, you know, silky, slippery, Thing. All these textures that, that sound unappetizing in Western cuisine, but are extremely, I think, comforting and delicious when done in this context. Um, toasting salt in a wok. Talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, one of my favorite dishes, um, we used to go to this restaurant in New York called Phoenix Garden, and their signature dish were these um, salt and pepper shrimp. And so they had these giant shell-on prawns that they would deep fry, and then toss with the salt and pepper mixture. And it always had this really strong, smoky flavor. And, you know, I, for a long time, assumed, okay, they're deep frying it, and then they're stir frying it afterwards to get that flavor. But then as I researched the dish more, I found the flavor is actually not coming from stir frying the shrimp. It's coming from salt that they've essentially stir fried. Hmm. And so I thought to myself, like, how on earth could just cooking salt in a wok give it a smoky flavor. So I went on Twitter and I asked people like, I asked people to help me design some experiments. And I spent a night just basically testing things out and posting the results. But <laughs> as, as I wrote in that New York Times story about wok hay, the three basic flavors that I associate with wok hay are the smokiness that comes from vaporized oil, the seared sauces that you get from adding sauces directly to hot metal, and the flavor of that black mm. oxide interacting with food. Um, so the smokiness that comes directly from the wok surface itself. Um, and that's what the salt will capture. So if you put salt in a wok and heat it up until it's basically smoking, the salt noticeably changes color. Mm. Um, it becomes sort of darker gray. And then when you take it out and season food with it, it has a very distinct sort of wok aroma. Um, and so, yeah, what I do is I, may, I toast a bunch of salt 
I take it out, then I toast some uh, Szechuan peppercorns and white pepper in the wok, and then I grind it all together, pound it all together in a mortar and pestle, and that's what I use as my sort of smoky salt and pepper blend Hmm. that is great on fried shrimp, uh, but it's also great on, you know, it's great on eggs, it's great on vegetables, whatever you want to add a little bit of smokiness to, it's, it's a good seasoning salt. Every time I talk to you, you surprise me. Well, that's good. <laughs> I always learn something I just would never have thought about, like toasting salt at a walk. Uh, Kenji, it's been a pleasure, of course. Thanks so much for joining us here on Milk Street. All right. Thanks, Chris. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. His book is The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. You know, I've known Kenji for at least a dozen years when we started working together, and he always brought a knack for engineering. For example, he turned a Weber grill into a liquid smoke machine, and he also had a lot of curiosity. He found out that using vodka and pie dough, for example, makes a more tender crust because the alcohol evaporates during baking, resulting in less gluten development. His success is an appreciation that science is really just a tool, not an end in itself. You know, most of us don't care about, let's say, Renaissance fresco techniques. We just enjoy looking at the Sistine Chapel. So I would say the arts, including cooking, are a reflection of our humanity, not our science. You know, good food is good food, no matter how you get there. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Moroccan flatbreads. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Here's my question. When is a flatbread not a flatbread? <laughs> when you're in Fez and you're eating hubs. <laughs> yeah, this does not look like a flatbread, but it doesn't look like a typical European loaf either. No, no. It's, you know, it's actually somewhat in between because it is yeasted, so it's not truly flat. It's, you know, kind of like a puffy flying saucer shape, actually. But I'll tell you, it's delicious. Just to go back, hubs is a bread that is eaten at every meal, sort of your all-purpose bread, utensil, dipping bread of choice. It's used for everything. Yeah, actually, you know, this is eaten at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It is used to sop up all the juices of everything. You know, silverware is not common in traditional Moroccan dining. This is your silverware. You use this bread to sop everything up, and it is so delicious. It's got the perfect spongy texture to really absorb all the delicious juices. A lot of flatbreads do use yeast, but this is a lot thicker. So what's the basic approach here? So you're basically just taking all-purpose flour and a little bit of semolina flour, which gives it a nice granularity and nice texture to it, and a little bit of wheat bran, which does the same thing. And I learned our version of the recipe from a home cook, Huda Medi, and she likes to add a lot of seeds to her bread as well. And I thought this really put hers over the top. She added sesame seeds, flax seeds, fennel seeds, and it just added both texture and taste that was phenomenal. All she did was mix it together and let it rise very briefly, actually. But the special part of baking bread in Fez is the Faran, or the community oven. And this is where home cooks take their shaped and risen dough to literally the communal oven in their neighborhood, where a baker will bake the bread for them, for the equivalent, you know, of a few pennies a loaf. They leave it. It gets baked for them, and then they go back and get it later, and they have wonderfully baked bread. 
So this is probably the same thing the Cratchits did with their Christmas goose. I mean, the communal oven was also in London and lots of other places around the world, right? Right. That's something we see across cultures. It's an economy of fuel. One oven can feed an entire community. You know, one of the things that I heard over and over again about these ovens in Fez is that they are losing ground because of the convenience of home electric ovens. But a lot of people still prefer to bring their bread to the Ferran, the communal oven, because of the taste. You know, these are wood-fired old-school ovens, and you really can taste the difference. Well, also... You can exchange gossip and see your neighbors and, and go out <laughs> exactly. for a walk, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> so you shape it. Is this baked just uh, on a baking sheet or how do they actually bake it? Well, you know, obviously in, in the communal ovens, it's a stone-bottomed oven and they throw these bread loaves on the peel. They throw them in the oven. They come out a few minutes later. We do it in a conventional oven, and they come out just as good, though. We just do them on a baking sheet, and they cook up great. The fun part, though, and you can do this at home if you choose to, but in Fez, it's essential, is the baker or the home cook will put light indentations in the top of their loaves before they're baked. And this is a very important thing. It identifies the loaves. I mean, you know, when you're a baker cooking three, four hundred loaves a day for maybe, you know, a hundred different families, you got to know whose bread is whose. Well, I'll just write mine on the top (laughs) of all of them, so I'll get to eat them. And also the baker will bake bread for himself or herself to sell as well, right? Yes, absolutely. And he has to be able to distinguish the loaves that are, you know, owed to certain families and those that he is just going to sell. And, you know, it also plays a role. It it prevents it from rising too much. You know, it deflates it a little bit right before it goes into the oven. It, It actually does serve a real purpose as well. So Moroccan flatbreads, hubs, which really is a great, you know, three times a day bread. And it's easy to make at home. Uh, It's absolutely delicious. J.M., thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Moroccan flatbread at MilkStreetRadio.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Cheryl Day and I will be taking a few more of your baking questions. Thanks for calling Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Bob Smith from Maslin, Ohio. Hi, Bob. How can we help you today? Well, I made the Swedish cardamom bums from the uh, November, December 21 issue. Oh, I love that recipe. Oh, and they were delicious. And not only that, they were beautiful. Well done. (laughs) Unfortunately, my fiance doesn't like cardamom, uh, but she does like the texture of the buns. I was wondering, what can I substitute for the cardamom and uh, what ratios could I use? And I'm hoping cinnamon is one of the answers. Cinnamon is one of the answers. Cardamom is one of my favorite spices, but I'm glad Mm -hmm. she liked the texture. And really the answer is what spices do you both enjoy? Well, almost all of them. It's just cardamom is, I think, a little too floral for her. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Cardamom, to me, has a very complex flavor. It's very earthy, warm, and I would definitely describe it as floral as well. I would try to do a combination of spices that kind of mimic that complexity. Mm -hmm. Equal amounts of cinnamon and ginger would be a great choice. 
Basically, what you're trying to do is create a flavor profile that isn't just one note. So I wouldn't do just cinnamon, but I definitely would do a combination of cinnamon and ginger in equal parts. I love coriander, and a lot of people don't use this in baking, but mm-hmm. I think that would be a great one to try. Um, ground okay. coriander or allspice, cinnamon, and nutmeg would be a great flavor combination as well. And the ratios? You know, I would just mix up. If you want to just do, I don't want you to run out and buy a bunch of spices, but if you have allspice and cinnamon, you could do equal parts. Or if you have allspice, cinnamon, and nutmeg, just do like a quarter teaspoon of each one would be great. Coriander, I love, I just love what it does to baked goods, but I'm curious to know what Chris thinks. I have a prejudice here. I, about a month <laughs> ago, I posted this thing on social about don't put cinnamon in your apple pie. Oh, right. Because you, you're, you're going to ruin it. And I got like <laughs> two, I got two million views and hundreds of people mad at me about what do you mean, no cinnamon? I think cinnamon tends to be overused and is overpowering. So I do have a suggestion. If you get real cinnamon, like salon cinnamon, right? it is floral, but it's more savory. It's not quite as strong. You know, it's a much more interesting, complex flavor. You know, that might be a great thing to add here because it has the complexity that you'd find in cardamom, but it's more interesting than regular cinnamon. That's one thing you could try. I just think mixing a couple because that cardamom in that recipe is so beautiful in that dough. You know, I think it would be a shame to just do cinnamon. I think it'd be nice to do a mix and play around with the flavors. Yeah, and I think the coriander, just like a half teaspoon of coriander, I think that's the best suggestion. That would really get you closer to cardamom. Okay. That would be my choice. I'll try that. All right. Well, great. Thanks for calling. Well, thanks for calling. Thank you very much. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a baking mystery, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kathy. And where are you calling from? Augusta, Georgia. I have a Pampered Chef ceramic Bunt pan that I have had for a long time and used successfully. And recently, like within the last year or so, my cakes will stick to it. I have to use hmm. a rubber spatula to loosen the sides up. And then when I turn it over, sometimes it doesn't come out at all. Right. Sometimes part of it comes out and the rest of it doesn't. And I feel like I haven't done anything different. So do I need to get rid of it, get a new pan? What's going on? When it's dry, does it feel smooth? Does it feel sticky? Is there residue on it? I think it feels smooth. I have been using a like a spray oil. Uh huh. Well, that's uh, there. There we go. That's the problem. You can fix it. I mean, just don't do it again. (laughs) (laughs) The baking police are here. Uh, (laughs) When you say ceramic, it's like a very smooth white porcelain style finish. It doesn't have a porcelain finish. It's um, like stoneware, isn't it? Sort of. Yes, it is porous. I think. I see. Okay. Well, we found that soft butter with your fingers and get it right into the crevices, etc. Absolutely. And I a agree. lot of it 
it works. And we also like putting a little sugar on top of that so you get sort of a nice crunchy topping. But I, I don't know how you're going to fix a porous bun pan once it gets sticky. Would you know how to reseason it, Cheryl? Specifically with that pampered chef recipe, you're going to need to at least give it a try to reseason it. But you're mm-hmm. going to want to kind of follow their instructions of doing a baking soda paste with a little water and cleaning it out first and then attempting to reseason it. Here's the other thing I thought about. I wonder if after I use it, when I'm sitting it in the sink with some water in it, mm-hmm. is that contributing to it not having the... Because for years it worked great. You know, that's a good point. I think that could be a problem. Okay. Yeah. And we're going to tell you to get a bunt pan. <laughs> yeah, I, a new one. I think the answer is spend 30 bucks and whatever and... And get one that's not too light colored, not too dark colored, sort of in between, like a gold colored one. We use those a lot. And if you are emotionally attached to that pan, maybe you can use it for other things. Yeah. (laughs) It's a centerpiece. Put some lemons in it. There you go. (laughs) Or put a plant in it. There you go. Yeah. It's perfect. So are you recommending a metal pan? Yeah. They're nonstick. This is a brand. I don't know if it's called Gold Tone. It's that gold finish. The Nordic wear pans. It may be that, yeah. So uh, that works fine. But again, butter and a little, you can do a little dusting of flour and kind of tap that out. Just old school. I'm old school when it comes to that. Or I do love Chris's idea with the sugar also, but you won't use the nonstick for those pans either. Thanks for calling and good luck with that. Thank you for calling. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or you can learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, Vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.